telling the story of human space launches and the future of space-based astronomy. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. For the past 25 years, CBS radio correspondent Peter King has covered human launches from Florida, including the last space shuttle launch in 2011. 50 miles downrange. And Atlantis well on its way to the International Space Station. What a sight it was, a last-minute cliffhanger, but it turned out just fine. The last shuttle launch, though, uh, leaves a lot of undone business for thousands of people here who are about to lose their jobs or already have. And the big question hanging over us here is, when will we see the next spacecraft with humans fly from here? That next space flight is happening now. Later this month, SpaceX will launch two NASA astronauts atop a Falcon 9 rocket. It'll be the first human launch from the U.S. in nearly a decade. We'll talk with Peter about his experience covering astronaut launches from Kennedy Space Center and his advice to me as I prepare to cover my first. Then, James Webb Space Telescope is behind schedule and over budget. A listener asked just how much longer can other space-based telescopes like Hubble last as we wait for the next generation to come online. We'll put that question to our panel of experts on this week's I'd Like to Know segment. That's just ahead, but first, let's take a look at the latest space news stories making headlines. SpaceX completed its last critical test ahead of this month's commercial crew launch. The company completed the 27th and final test of the parachutes designed to help land astronauts safely back on Earth. The test paves the way for the launch of NASA's Bob Behnken and Doug Hurley on a mission to the International Space Station, currently slated for May 27th. The next big milestone for SpaceX and NASA is the Flight Readiness Review, scheduled for May 20th. Stay up to date on the latest space news. Visit wmfe.org space or give me a follow on Twitter. I'm at SpaceBrendan. That commercial crew launch will be the first human launch from the U.S. since 2011. And as a space reporter, it will be the first time I'm covering astronauts blasting off. That's why I reached out to Peter King for some advice. He's a correspondent for CBS Radio and has covered the space beat for 25 years. We spoke about his decades-long career telling the story of space and what advice he has for me. But first, we begin the conversation talking about Peter's first launch. Well, the first one I covered uh, was uh, back in early 1997, February, and it was the second Hubble telescope servicing mission, and I was scared to death. (laughs) I mean, if you've never done a live broadcast of a launch before, you have no idea how much you don't know about this stuff despite how much you think you do know about it. And I had the shuttle book, and if you remember the shuttle book or have ever seen it, it is about uh, five inches thick, and it tells you everything you need to know about the space shuttle. It weighs about 150 pounds, and I still have mine. It could be a doorstop. And I remember trying to prepare and over-prepare, and it's like, oh, my God, how am I going to do this? It turned out okay. It was a beautiful launch, middle-of-the-night launch, and I can remember, you know, I felt like a baseball play-by-play guy, and I was that excited on the air, and and they actually had to say later on, hey, that was pretty good, but you kind of need to tamp it down just a tad. (laughs) And, you know, as you get more comfortable with this, uh, 
you know, it becomes a little bit more commonplace for you. It becomes a little bit uh, not less of a wonder, but, uh, you know, just a little bit. Uh, you don't have to get as excited every time you crack open the mic. Even if you are excited, it'll always show in the way you're talking or, or whatever. And it, it turned out pretty well. So uh, a, a, a shuttle or a Hubble servicing mission, um, there's a crew on board. Um, how much interaction did you have with, with the astronauts before, um, before this launch? Did you, did you get to meet them? Did you get to interview them? Um, did, did you know who they were? On that one, uh, no interaction before because I didn't get the assignment until almost the last minute. Uh, I knew who they were. I knew who was on board and all of those things. But it wasn't until, you know, a little bit later on where I started really covering this regularly. I was still working locally uh, at the time, so I couldn't go, you know, balls to the wall craziness on every shuttle mission. But uh, that changed a few months later. And uh, then you start going to the briefings beforehand and ans- asking the questions. Sometimes you get the one-on-ones and round robins. So, you know, as time progressed for me, I got to know them a bit better and, and got to spend a little bit more quality time talking to them before the flights. And what was it like um, day of for launch for you? Um, you know, when did you show up? When did you crack that mic open? Uh, what, was your, what was your workload uh, a day of launch? Because I've got I've to assume... It's a pretty busy day for for a radio reporter, right? It really absolutely truly is a busy day because keep in mind, if you're doing a newscast, your newscasts on the network are going 24-7 at the top of the hour. So the beast is always hungry and they always want material. And if you're there, well, why shouldn't you be live every hour if you can be? And, you know, there were a number of launches where there were other things going on in the world and Perhaps they weren't as interested until maybe a couple of hours before launch launch time. There were other launches, like, for example, the John Glenn launch in 1998, where they wanted every hour on the hour starting at about 6 a.m., even though the launch wasn't until 2 in the afternoon. Now, generally, for any launch, I would get there way early. Some people get there even before fueling. Uh, I would get there sometimes perhaps uh, seven or eight hours early, sometimes a little bit less than that. And, you know, it's kind of like an athlete getting to the clubhouse hours and hours before game time. You want to be in the surroundings. You want to make sure you're all set up, that you've got your game plan, that you've got your notes, that you've got your stuff together, that you've planned for all the possible contingencies, that all the technical things that you need to use are all working, all of those kinds of things. So, you know, generally I'm there hours hours before. And, and, and we've got a 432 launch for commercial crew coming up on the 27th. I'll probably be there uh, at uh, 6 or 7 in the morning, if not earlier, because it's a big day and it's going to be an important day. That's how I treated every shuttle launch. Uh, John Glenn used to be, they used to ask John Glenn, so what's the most important mission? He always said, the next one. And he was right, whatever the next one is. You've covered countless launches. I won't ask you to tally them up. <laughs> I, don't have an, I don't have enough fingers. <laughs> <laughs> so you've covered shuttle launches since 97. Uh, um, as we know, the shuttle went till 2011. Did, did, did it ever become routine to you? I know a lot of people talk about shuttle launches becoming routine. For you, was it ever, uh, oh, man, I've got to cover another shuttle today? Oh, God, no. 
you've got to understand that I grew up as a Mercury, Gemini, Apollo kid in the 60s. And it was my dream not to fly in space because I knew I didn't have the science chops. But I knew that I could probably learn enough about it to do a decent job as a reporter if I ever became a reporter. And it was kind of a dream of mine to be able to cover space. So it's like... And I still remember the first time driving up to uh, KSC in the middle of the night and seeing the spotlights on the VAB and the launch pads and stuff and thinking, oh, my God, I get to do this? How cool is that? And I can remember having dinner before one shuttle launch with Jim Voss, uh, the uh, space station astronaut who was working as an analyst for us uh, at the time. And we're looking out the window at what used to be Paul's smokehouse across from the launch pads in Titusville. And the launch pads are bathed in, in in searchlights. And he turned to me and he said, you know what? That's what it should look like. That's what space looks like. So every launch has been special in one way, shape, or form. Never got routine at all. Part of that also, Brendan, is because as we learned with Challenger and as we've learned uh, subsequently, sometimes you never know what's going to happen. I mean, the Russians have had aborts. We have had aborts, if you will, just before the shuttle was going to launch when the engine started up and then shut down immediately because something went wrong. And you have to listen because you never know what's going to happen on the way up as well. So, you know, nothing is ever a given. Nothing is ever routine. And space is really, really hard. Peter, you say uh, every launch is special. So I think this next question is going to be a difficult one for you then, because um, I had written here <laughs> to ask you um, what your favorite mission was, or if there was a particular mission that, that stood out to you that, that you remember um, from those days. So I'm going to put you on the spot. What is it? Actually, that's, that's pretty easy. Uh, and not a single favorite mission, but I've got a couple of them. All of the Hubble missions, because... It was not just launch and landing for me. Remember, I, I, I was covering these things wall-to-wall, which means spacewalks, spacewalks, and more spacewalks. And when they go EVA, and they're in those bulked-up spacesuits trying to work with those tiny, tiny parts and get into those tight spaces inside the Hubble, I mean, my God, that was just... That was artistry at work. So I covered... Uh, Let's see, I think there were five Hubble servicing missions, and I think I covered four of them. The only one I didn't get was the very first one back in 1993. So I love those. Um, Return to flight, STS-114, in the summer of 2005, because uh, it had been more than two years since the Columbia accident. Uh, I had covered not just Columbia and was not just on the air when uh, all of this happened, we stayed on the air for more than eight hours that day continuously. But I covered the aftermath of, of the investigation, the accident board's final report, and all the milestones for return to flight. And covering return to flight in 2005, you know, that was not anticlimactic. It was uh, exciting as hell. And uh, there are personal reasons I love that one, too. Wound up... Uh, Meeting, well, not meeting because she had been an old friend, but uh, uh, renewing a friendship with a woman who eventually I married and have been married to now for 10 years. So, you know, that's got uh, that's got uh, some sentimental value there. She was a reporter for a rival news organization 
but uh, we were we had been friends uh, before, and it was nice to renew the relationship. We had no idea where it was going. Wonderful, a, a lift off into a lasting relationship, huh? To use a to use a space pun. <laughs> well, well put, well put, and we wound up with uh, many soft landings. <laughs> well, well, speaking of lift off and landing, Peter. Um, Tell me about what it's like. What what's the mood like um, at liftoff at Kennedy Space Center when there's, you know, uh, humans on board and and there's large crowds gathering. Uh, what's the energy like uh, when you watch one of these launches? Oh, there is nothing like it. And uh, you know, I haven't gotten a chance to watch too many of them as spectators because I've been busy broadcasting them. But I could tell you that uh, whether you're on the air or whether you're watching as a, a spectator, you're holding your breath and you're hoping everything goes safely. And the thing that I love is uh, not just the sight, but the sound and the shock wave that comes back toward you uh, shortly after liftoff. It's really a few seconds because you're three and a half or three miles away from the pad. But when you hear that shuddering inside your, your, your heart and the building that you're in, if you have to be inside like I am, the whole building shakes, the window shakes, uh, the whole nine yards. If you're outside, it's a whole different ball game. And, uh, you know, the sight and sound is amazing, but the anticipation, of course, uh, is uh, there. There's no way to describe it. It's just uh, you're you're kind of holding your breath and hoping everything goes perfectly. Peter, thinking back to that uh, that last space shuttle flight, STS-135, um, and 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 broadcasting that launch. And when that was done, did you ever think that you would be back in a position to be covering this again? Yeah, but I didn't know how long it was going to be. On launch day, I said, you know, the unanswered question is when we will be launching humans from Kennedy Space Center again. And it was uh, the same thing after after landing. And after landing, I still remember saying, whenever that happens... We'll be here to do it, and uh, I fully planned on being there. Here's the thing, though, and I, I was listening to some old tapes uh, just yesterday, and it was Chris Ferguson, I think, who was saying that he expected that uh, as early as 2016 that would happen. <laughs> you know, he, he's, uh, he, he was just slightly off, but, I mean, we were all hopeful that it was going to happen around then, and... Uh, the thing that blows me away, though, is that, you know, not just nine years, but that nine years is longer than it took to go from zero to the moon back in the 60s. It was much less than the time it took from Apollo Soyuz to the first space shuttle flight in 1981. That was only uh, that was not even six years. Uh, nine years to me has just uh, been unconscionable, but uh, priorities change and. You know, you remember the line for the right stuff, no bucks, no Buck Rogers, and it's taken a long, long time to pay for all of this, to develop all of this from both the SpaceX and Boeing standpoints, and uh, yeah. space, again, as I said earlier, space is hard. But Peter King, it, it is here, despite the uh, the budgetary cuts and delays, it's happening. Um, I'm going to ask you to take your reporter hat off. For a moment and put your space fan hat on since since you are a self-described space nut since the days of mercury um what's it like to you to know that this capability um to launch humans 
again from from the U.S. is happening, and it's happening right here in your backyard. Well, my first reaction on all that is it's about damn time. Uh, it's it's been too long, and it's great to see uh, the business of launching humans into space uh, is going to be back in business. Uh, it's. Uh, you know, commercial crew is exciting. I'm looking forward to the SpaceX launch. I'm looking forward to Boeing getting its act together and being able to launch their Starliner. I'm looking forward to Orion in a few years for uh, what we hope will be a return to the moon. Uh, I- I'm hoping to be around long enough to cover a lunar landing. I may be senior space correspondent emeritus by then, but uh, I hope to be back for that. I mean, when I was a kid, you know, I thought about covering moon missions. So you know, that would be nice to that would be a nice uh, cap on what's been a pretty storied and uh, amazing career. Well, Peter, I'm hoping to pick your brain about that story career, and you put your reporter hat back on. Um, I've only been covering this beat for about five years, so this means this is my first uh, human launch that I'll be covering. Uh, what's some advice you can share with me, even to a rival radio guy? <laughs> <laughs> you you are not a rival radio guy. You are a colleague and a friend, and and the best advice I can, uh, best pieces of advice I can think of are um, be as prepared as you can possibly be. Do your homework. Read what you can that tells you what you need to know about the launch vehicle, the spacecraft, and the astronauts. Be prepared for the unexpected, and unfortunately, be prepared for the worst. You know, one of the things that uh, was always in front of me, for example, for every shuttle flight was, you know, full information about not just the spacecraft, but the humans who were aboard that. You need to have all of that information right there because if something goes wrong, you got to be able to talk about it. The other thing that uh, uh, I'll tell you is you can never make an assumption that, uh, you know, something has happened. Uh, you can never make an assumption or a guess as to what has happened if something has gone wrong. And that was a, an important lesson I learned um, from listening to broadcasts as a kid, not necessarily space, but other things, but it was something that I remembered when uh, when Columbia came apart. Um, often enough, we just had to talk about what we don't know. We just knew that Columbia hadn't shown up when it was supposed to land. We didn't know why. We knew that debris was seen over Texas, and you concentrate on what you do know. The other thing I will tell you is keep your ears on mission control, and conversations and uh, all of the stuff that goes out over uh, the audio circuit uh, and expect, again, the unexpected. That's always going to be. Expect the unexpected. Oh, the other thing, have fun. There is no better assignment in this business than doing space. And I'm excited for you doing your first human space flight launch uh, you will never forget it. It's like your first love. You will never forget it. Well, wonderful. Peter, you have always been a friend and a colleague as well. I only make the the rival joke because there's not many radio folks uh, like us out there anymore. So it has been wonderful to, to work alongside you for these past five years. 
I'm very excited to work alongside you for many, many more, um, especially as we cover the first human launches from, from the U.S. later this month. Uh, we've been speaking with CBS News radio correspondent Peter King. Peter, thank you so much for this conversation. Brendan, you're one of my favorite people in the business or out of the business, and it has been a pleasure to be on with you. Still to come, coronavirus is delaying the launch of NASA's Next Generation Telescope. What does that mean for anxious astronomers and our understanding of the universe? Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. The James Webb Space Telescope is behind schedule and over budget, in part due to staffing cuts because of coronavirus. A listener asked just how much longer can other space-based telescopes like Hubble last as we wait for the next generation to come online. We'll put that question to our panel of experts, UCF's Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell on this week's I'd Like to Know segment. Jim kicks off the conversation. You know, in general, obviously, this uh, the James Webb has been delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed. Uh, it's obviously every time it's delayed, that's less astronomy that can be done with it. Uh, but Hubble is still up there, so it's still working. Now, I mean, obviously, Hubble is largely over, oversubscribed. Many, many more people want to use it than can. Uh, and eventually it'll quit working. So we need to get the James Webb up there at some point. It's not really less astronomy total. It's just later astronomy. I yeah, mean, anxious it, it, astronomers it, it, have to wait. Well, I mean, this is different than, for example, there are times when we have planetary missions that need to get to a target by a certain time. For example, if you want to see a comet when it's close to the sun, or if you want to catch some seasonal activities, you have to launch by a certain time in order to take advantage of gravitational assist to get there to see the thing that you're looking for, which is maybe ephemeral. But for James Webb Space Telescope, we're building a big observatory. And once it's open, it'll be able to do a lot of great stuff because it's not really aimed at looking at some ephemeral phenomena that we know is happening in 2021. And if we're not up by then, we'll miss it. Jim Cooney, you brought up an an interesting point in that Hubble is uh, kind of overbooked. Um, What is is the process of of using time on telescopes like the Hubble and... Are those applications or, or is that process open for James Webb even before it launches? It is. People are applying for, for time on the James Webb Space Telescope already, even though we're not entirely sure of when it will launch. Uh, you know, there are tentative plans, but uh, this coronavirus business has delayed it even further. Uh, but yeah, generally, if you're a scientist and want to use one of these things, it's a, it's a long, involved process. You have to write up your kind of application to use a telescope saying, here's what I want to view and here's why it's important to science. And you send that in and Lots and lots and lots of groups send these in, and, and uh, a review panel looks at these things and decides which ones are the most meritorious, and then you are uh, awarded time. I don't think yeah. any of the three of us have ever been awarded time, but the uh, uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's very competitive, and uh, even more so with James Webb, because everybody's been chomping at the bit to get at that thing for so long that uh, when it first opens, there's going to be a whole lot of people desperately wanting to get on. Yeah. And not only when you write your proposals, not only do you have to like argue your science and why it's interesting and why James Webb is, or Hubble are the right telescope to use for that, but also you have to um, make an observing plan. So you have to say when these things are going to be visible in the sky, how long, what kind of observing, like what kind of observing plan you need. And so um, it's really challenging because folks who are submitting proposals for James Webb have to be doing those assuming it's up in 2022 or something like that, right? But then if, even if those proposals initially get selected, there's a chance some of those targets may not, they might have to repropose and revise how um, how they get those observations if it doesn't launch in time. So 
Um, they already delayed the original proposals. There was supposed to be a deadline six months ago or something, and they delayed the original proposals, but there's a call still open again. Um, so there are people proposing to use the telescope. We kind of alluded to this at the start of the conversation is that, you know, there is a lifespan for Hubble. Is that coming up anytime soon? And should we be worried if we can't get James Webb up in time that we might not have uh, a, a space-based observatory available to astronomers like yourselves? The director of the Space Telescope Science Institute, which operates HST and will be operating uh, James Webb and, or managing the science operations for it, uh, estimates that they're sort of working towards uh, 2025 operations for Hubble and potentially longer. And they're in this sort of unknown territory of there are certain things that have been up there and operating for 30 years. And there's no particular reason to think that they're going to fail imminently, but uh, they could. But a lot of the components have been replaced and they've sort of passed through their kind of burn in period. So there is reason, I think, for optimism and a lot of spacecraft that uh, we've operated have far exceeded their original lifetimes. Like, look at the Mars rovers. Uh, were originally 90 days and went for years and years. I was just going to say, it's worth noting that, that a lot of people think of James Webb as just the successor to Hubble, but it's actually a very different instrument. Uh, the, the James Webb Space Telescope is a, a more of an infrared telescope, whereas uh, the Hubble Space Telescope was largely a, a visible or optical telescope. Uh, J, uh, James Webb is also much, much larger, has different instruments. So it's, it's, a, it's a very different tool. And so having both of them online at the same time would be great. It's not like a you know, we need to have one or the other or something, having both would be awesome. The big difference between them is the primary wavelength in which they observe, but they're also in very different orbits. So they'll have very different capabilities for some of the observing targets that they do, um, uh, both in terms of like what can be observed in the infrared versus just in the visible. And then also like how they're gonna be able to look at things is a little bit different just because of their different orbits. Yeah, the, the orbit is largely different because they're operating different wavelengths, right? Uh, James Webb is an infrared telescope, which means that it has to be very, very cold uh, because the telescope itself, if the telescope is warm, it emits infrared radiation, which gets in the way of the things that it's trying to observe. And so we have to put the James Webb Space Telescope very far away from the Earth and Sun and in a position that it can be shielded from the Earth, Moon, and Sun at all times, which means not in low Earth orbit like Hubble is. So. Fascinating stuff. Well, this this brings up an interesting question because um, I never thought of it this way. But um, you know, I mean, the the one thing that I love about Hubble as a as a communicator is these wonderful visualizations that we get of these things that that Hubble looks at. Like my favorite image uh, from Hubble is the Pillars of Creation. You know, I've got it printed on anything I can find. It's my desktop background. I'm sure you all have your favorite <laughs> Hubble observations as well. But will we still will we see? The cosmos in, in the same way uh, with James Webb as as we do with Hubble, we still get these beautiful visualizations of of, uh, of our universe. Yeah. A whole new world. To yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, 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 just because the pictures, I mean, honestly, many of the Hubble images that you see are false colored anyway. They're not the actual, they're not what you'd see if you looked at it. Uh, so you'll see similar things from James Webb. You'll see a lot of beautiful images that are infrared images, but are false colored to look like something miraculous and awesome. So yes, it might. it's not exactly the same thing as Hubble, but similar. You'll see awesome things. That was UCF scientists and hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy, Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell. You can get their podcast, Walk About the Galaxy, wherever you get this show or visit walkaboutthegalaxy.com. 
Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE and WMFV. Editorial guidance this week from Nicole Darden-Creston. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Show your support for this show and the local journalism you rely on by making a donation at WMFE.org. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.